The epistle for this second Sunday after Easter is taken from St. Peter's first epistle. Beloved, Christ has suffered for us, leaving you an example that you may follow in his steps. Who did no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, did not revile. When he suffered, did not threaten, but yielded himself to him who judged him unjustly who himself bore our sins in his body upon the tree, that we, having died to sin, might live to justice, and by his stripes you were healed. For you were as sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Please stand for the gospel. The gospel is taken from the 10th chapter of the Gospel of St. John. At that time, Jesus said to the Pharisees, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep, but the hireling, who is not a shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches and scatters the sheep, but the hireling flees because he is a hireling and has no concern for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know mine, and mine know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for my sheep. And other sheep I have that are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Please be seated. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen. Dear faithful, Last Sunday, I was very privileged to participate in a beautiful ceremony in Minnesota for wherein three sets of, of women were espousing themselves to our Lord Jesus Christ at three different levels. There were four women there who took the habit for the first time. They, they, they took on, they, they were invested in the religious habit. There were four other women who made their first profession. It was the day when they engaged themselves for the first time, making vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, and they put on a ring which symbolized that they were now espoused to our Lord Jesus Christ. And then there were four other women yet who made their perpetual engagement in the religious life. In other words, they bound themselves for all eternity to be a spouse of our Lord Jesus Christ. On this Good Shepherd Sunday, it's customary to speak about vocations, precisely because our Lord is talking to us about his relationship with us as our high priest, how he is the shepherd and we are the sheep, how his role, one, one of his roles in being our priest is to lead us to safe pastures, to protect us from the snares of the devil, the wolf, who goes about seeking to devour us, and how he wants to lead us to eternal safety. And what a blessed thing it is for a family to have a vocation uh, among their children. This is the beautiful ambition of every devout family. What they pray for on a daily basis, may one of my children pursue a vocation. May God grant the grace to our family that, that one or even more uh, than one of my children may give their life to God. The devout family dreams of the day when their daughter will put on that ring and declare herself to be a spouse of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
The devout family dreams of the day when their son will be receiving a call from the bishop who will tell him to take one step forward and by that step to engage himself as a subdeacon and pledge his life to a life of celibacy to marry himself to the church. The devout family dreams of the day when their son or daughter will be enclosed behind stone walls wearing a religious habit and singing the praises of God day and night. When I spoke to the sisters to, on their retreat to prepare them for, for their special day, when they would um, make these, take these steps towards a greater union with our Lord, I spoke to them about their identity as a sister, what it means to, to be a sister. It means to be a supernatural spouse. To be a spouse of our Lord is similar to being a spouse in the married life, and also different from being a spouse in the married life. It's different in the, in the sense that it's wholly supernatural. And the church is wont, when speaking about the vocation, to make a likeness between marriage, as is found in the world, and the engagement, the consecration of the soul to God. There's this parallel between marriage and the consecrated life. When a priest becomes a priest, we speak of him as being married to the bride of Christ. We speak of Christ having this chaste union with Holy Mother the Church. So the priest, he gives his life to Holy Mother Church. He engages himself to be wed to Holy Mother Church rather than a woman for his life. And so too, the nun, when, when she becomes a nun, as I mentioned, she puts on a ring because she is wed to our Lord Jesus Christ. So the man marries the church, the woman marries our Lord. In this, these analogies, they show us what the consecrated life is primarily about. It is primarily a question of the love of, that the soul has for God. The pursuit of the vocation, in other words, deep down, what motivates it, what drives it, is a love of God, a love that moves a person to say, I want to give my life for Holy Mother of the Church, for our Lord Jesus Christ, in a perpetual union. This is what Father McFarlane has, has tried to stress in the, uh, the vocation series, the podcast series, about vocations. That yes, okay, a vocation is a calling from God, but it's also a response on the part of the soul. And someone thinking to themselves about a vocation, the primary question they should be asking themselves is, is not, do I have a call from God? The primary question they should be asking themselves is, do I have a heart that's willing to give itself to God? Am I willing to present myself as a possible vocation, such that if God wants me, I am here to give myself? How does this happen? How does it happen? that a child, over the years, when they grow up and they come to maturity, they make this decision, I want to offer my life to God. My dear faithful, it happens primarily through you. It happens primarily through the family, through the father, through the mother, the way they live out their family life. The atmosphere of the home, 
the home is the primary environment where the vocation is nourished. This is what Archbishop Lefebvre says, nothing replaces a good practicing Catholic family for the preparation of a good vocation. Last year, about a year ago, I was standing here preaching on graduation day for our school. We had 11 graduates, and thanks be to God, we had the blessing of having four of our seniors out of the 11 who were choosing to pursue religious life or, or the priesthood. And on that day, I, I said, candidly, I have to admit that, that the school is not able to take the primary credit for these four vocations. The primary credit goes to the family because the family, the parents, they have the primary influence on their children. School is willing to take the secondary credit, but to be honest, it cannot take the primary credit. What kind of family must you have, my dear faithful, to create an atmosphere that is apt ground for a vocation? Well, I just want to go over a few things um, that would characterize a family that we, from which we could expect might come a vocation or two or three. I only give certain general thoughts on this question. There's always exception. I just want to speak about a general rule. God can move souls however he wants. He can bring a vocation out of right field if he wants to. But generally speaking, Vocations come from families that have certain characteristics. First of all, families that love one another. Families where the father and the mother have a true sacrificial love for one another and have a true sacrificial love for their children. If a vocation is about the love that a soul has for God, in other words, if a vocation is about someone making the decision to them in, in their heart of hearts, I want, out of, out of my love for God, I want to offer my life to God, then it's so important that they learn how to love in their family. Children conceive their notion of love. They have exhibited them the way in which you go about loving by what they see in the relationship that their father and their mother have between themselves and which their father and their mother have towards them. And if they grow up in an environment and a home that is happy because the father and the mother love one another and they love their children in a truly sacrificial way, then they will certainly have the capacity of love that is required to offer their life to God when they come of age. The second characteristic of a, a family that produces vocations is a family that loves God. Of course, if, if the vocation is primarily motiv motivated by a love of God, then the vocation will come from a family that loves God. The family has to have a spiritual life. It must do spiritual things. It must foster a love for the Catholic faith a love for our Lord, a love for our Lady. The family has to pray. It has to have a certain fervor of devotion. It has to go to Mass. 
Few parents are capable of making your children love our Lord. You're getting them halfway to a vocation. Few parents are capable of making your children love the Mass. You're getting them halfway to a vocation. And please note that that getting them to come to Mass is not the same as getting them to love the Mass. Obviously, you have to go to Mass to to love the Mass. Uh, No one would say, well, I I really love ice cream, I just never eat it. Um, If if you, if you really love ice cream, then of course you're going, you're going to partake of ice cream on a regular basis. Um, and so, so too with the Mass. I mean, you, you have to go to Mass to love the Mass. But just going to Mass is not sufficient to love the Mass. To love the Mass, there, you have to go to Mass and have a spirit of worship. You, you have to have this desire to, to be with our Lord, to adore Him, to unite with Him, to receive him in Holy Communion, speak to him. Please note also that a family that is spiritual, that has a true love of God, necessarily, by that fact, does not have a love of the world because of the fact that these two loves are incompatible. Our heart is is only so big. Our heart is there, and it has a certain capacity for love. There's a certain love that fills it up. And to the degree that the love of God is there in your heart, then the love of the world is going to be excluded. But if the love of the world comes in, it's going to push out the love of God. It's, it's going to make the heart less capable of loving God, leave less room for the love of God. The business of the world... The main purpose or the, the, the main job of the world is to stifle the spiritual life. The world wants your children to love it. And the world understands that for your children to love the world is the same as them not loving God. It has to draw your children away from God so that it can love itself. The world has an incredible power today just enter into your home and entice the heart of your children, attract your children to all manner of things that are not God. The biggest destroyer of the vocation today is worldly entertainment that is so prevalent in so many homes. You know that these devices that, that we have today that are so powerful and give access to all manner of worldliness, um, they destroy so many souls. And it's because of this fact that, that it, it makes it more difficult for parents to parent. It's, it's a lot more challenging today to, to be a parent um, because that, that world has a new ability to infiltrate your home. <clears throat> There is a greater vigilance required on the part of parents. You have to monitor the devices that your children are using. If you're not monitoring the devices that your children are using, if you do not know what's in the history of the devices that, that you possess, it's, it's like taking your children in front of a plasma screen TV and, and, and saying, 
my child, there's a thousand channels out there. Here's the remote control. Enjoy yourself. And you walk away. And who knows what they may be viewing? Who knows how quickly their souls may be corrupted and the sense of spiritual things may be snuffed out in their soul such that they not only lose a possible vocation, but maybe the faith itself. And just so we're clear on how the world destroys vocations, I want to be very frank. To have a vocation, you have to have the capacity to lead a celibate life. And nudity is incompatible with chastity. Chastity comes from the word chastise, the chastising of the body, the repressing of this appetite for sexual pleasure. If a child or a teenager or a young adult becomes addicted to sexual pleasure, they will not be capable of pursuing a vocation. The world destroys vocations through sensual pleasure. Sensual pleasure, addiction to, to sensual pleasure, it warps the person's capacity to love. It turns a person from perhaps loving in the sense of wanting to do good to the other to them loving in the sense of seeing what pleasure can I derive from this person? How can this person be an object of pleasure to me? It makes a person, in other words, love pleasure instead of God, love themselves instead of God. The third love, my dear faithful, that a family needs in order to foster a vocation, believe it or not, is the love of its parish. A vocation is primarily a question of loving God. But when you go to pursue a vocation, you have to pursue the vocation in the context of a religious family. The, the, the girl, she has to choose a convent to which she goes. The boy, he has to choose a seminary or a monastery to which he goes. So in other words, those who pursue a vocation do not just give their lives to God. They give their lives to a religious family. And they will learn to love the religious family through their family's devotion to its parish. In every parish, of course, there's always a, a wide range of people and the level of their engagement in the activities of the parish. There, there is some on, on the very low end. They might, they might just show up uh, just on, on Sunday for, for a low mass and um, throw a few dollars in the collection plate, receive the sacraments, and leave. And, and that's, that's the full extent of their, of their engagement in their parish. On, on the other end, there are people who are all in, who would say that they're, they're all in. Um, they, they join the parish groups, and they, they are participate in the activities of the groups. They, they sign up for volunteer activities, whatever activities might contribute to the building up of their parish. Um, they're generous in, in supporting the welfare of the church. Uh, they entrust the, their children to, to the school for the children to be formed in order to that the children might might be around the priest and perhaps foster uh, a vocation. They sing in the choir, um, or they, they serve it at Mass and benediction. Um, they have this sense of the fact that their love of God is partially expressed through the love of their parish. Everything that is done is voluntary. 
It's a free choice on the part of you who, who come here. To what level am I going to engage myself? There's no, there's no checklist at the door where we say, okay, how much have you given? How much have you put in the collection plate? You know, have you reached this level where we're willing to give you the sacraments? All right, we'll give you the sacraments because you've engaged enough or what have you. There's nothing like that. You, you engage yourself according to your love of God, according to what you choose. And those who love more, give more. And by doing so, give another lesson to their children of the love of God, an example, they give a living example of the love of God, serving our Lord by serving their parish. Here, too, there is something that can stifle a vocation and something I preached about some months ago, and it's the question of trust. Trust is extremely important for you to give yourself to a religious family. If someone is, is, is growing up in their parish, like a parish of the SSPX, and they, they have this impression that, well, the, the SSPX, I can only trust them so far. Maybe I'll receive the sacraments from them, but I don't know. I don't know if, if I should trust them completely with the salvation of my soul. How will such a child reach a stage where they're saying, I want to give my life to the SSPX, or I want to give my life to a religious family associated with the SSPX? because they will not have that trust. Of course, you know, the, the, the trust is one, another one of those things that's not, not required to be here, but it is required for a child to pursue a vocation. Lack of trust means lack of love, and as I say, it is love that fuels that vocation. So my dear faithful, my dear fathers and mothers, it is primarily the incarnation of love that exists in the family that drives the soul of a young adult when they come of age to give their lives out of love to God. And what a blessing for a family it is to achieve this. What a miracle you are given to accomplish through the grace of God. A vocation is a miracle. It's something wholly supernatural. To give one or more vocations to the church, to have one of your sons or daughters, or sons and daughters, consecrated to God, praying for you as a special representative before God, set an example for your other children. And in a sense, you will be able to brag on your judgment day. What a, what a great thing it would be able to brag a little bit on your, the day of your particular judgment when our Lord approaches you and, and you are able to, to say to him, I have imitated your, your mother. I've, I've striven in my life to be like your mother. You know how your mother had only one son, you, and she gave you back to God. I've tried to be like you. I, too, I have given my child to God to be consecrated to him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen.